Super Talk Mississippi media production. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are making coastal Mississippi such a great place to live work and play. Hey, listen, I have a great guest today. We'll come to him in just a second, but we're going to celebrate a coastal Mississippian that has done really, really well. And uh, today's going to be a lot of fun as we explore his life and and his uh, his distinction, which we'll come to here in just a second. I came across uh, something from Margaret Mead the other day. She's the, the famous anthropologist. She died back in 1978, in November of 1978. And uh, she once said this that I really relate to. She said this, I, I was wise enough to never grow up while fooling most people into believing I had. <laughs> that was Margaret Mead. Uh, you know, I can, I can truly relate to that. It, I, I've always kind of looked at myself as young at heart, um, very young at heart. I, I, I love to enjoy life and live in the moment. If you're a regular listener here on Coast View, you know that very well. But 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 hearing that quote from Margaret Mead reminded me of a of a poem that I really enjoy and it's one of my favorite and it's about Natalia Crow and here's here's the poem: Read a book, sip some tea, create art, climb a tree, seek adventure on land and sea, stay young at heart, be wild and free. I think that describes me really well. It really does, and it might describe you too. I think. You know, a lot of people, as they get older, they like to think of themselves as young and hard. Speaking of reading a book, though, uh, Mississippi, as you well know, if you paid any attention to literature at all when you were growing up, Mississippi has an incredible distinction in the literary world, rich history of writers. I mean, think about people like William Faulkner, which I'll come back to here in just a second, and Eudora Wealthy and Richard Wright and John Grisham. I've, I've read every single book that he's that he's written uh, just prolific, and uh, obviously he he is, uh, is is had a lot of commercial success. Shelby Foote and uh, Walker P- Perry, and man, the list goes on and on. You should look it up. You'd be surprised how many great literary uh, uh, writers came from from Mississippi. Speaking of William Faulkner, he was born back in 1997 and uh, on Jefferson Street in New Albany, Mississippi. And this is from uh, this is from the website that that, that announced the William Faulkner liter- literary contest. Uh, he won uh, notable awards, like for example, the 1949 Nobel Prize for literature. In 1955 and 1963, he won Pulitzer prizes for fiction. In 1951 and 1955, he was recognized with the National Book Awards. He's, uh, he's been very significant. Obviously, his birthplace is here. He's one of the most celebrated writers in American literature, generally, it says on the website, but also very specifically Southern literature. And so as a result of that, they started what is called the William Faulkner Literary Contest for aspiring writers. By the way, it's an international award. That's really important to note here, that the competition among writers for this award specifically is very, very steep. Um, as a result of, uh, of the years of award, of, of excuse me, as a result of this year's award, let me put it that way, there's a Mississippi name that's emerging 
that can be added to the list of celebrated writers here in Mississippi. And his name is Mar- Martin Hegwood. And I want to read something that came from uh, the Mississippi Super Talk Mississippi media news site. And uh, it kind of describes uh, the distinction of his award. Here it is. Here's the headline. Martin Hegwood uh, becomes the first Mississippian to win the William Faulkner Literary Competition. And here's the, here's the story. The William Faulkner Literary Committee has named Martin Hegwood of Pascagoula as the winner of its 2022 novel competition for the, his latest man, manuscript titled Memphis. Memphis, which one of the judges called a Deep South version of Downtown Abbey, is set in and around ten- the Tennessee city between 1999 and 2005. The book depicts the struggles of the Winfords, a dynasty since the days when cotton was king, as they try to maintain the- their dominance in society as the city enters the 21st century. Hegwood's uh, selection was announced at the 25th annual William Faulkner Literary Luncheon last month in Faulkner's downtown, hometown, excuse me, of, of New Albany. Hegwood is the first Mississippian in, in history of the competition to win the novel portion of the competition. I am thrilled today to have Martin join me here, this this incredible Mississippi writer here on Coast View to tell his story. How you doing, Martin? Ricky, doing just fine. Thanks for having me on. It's great. It's great to have you. So where are you sitting right now? I am in the city council chambers at Pascagoula in the mayor's chair, as a matter of fact. My, my friend Jay Willis is the mayor of Pascagoula now, and he graciously, graciously allowed me to, to do this interview in the chambers. Well, that's awesome. Jay Willis has been on this show many times. I have, I have a lot of respect for him. I like him a lot. And he represents, like so many other mayors along coastal Mississippi, as a man who had success in his life, didn't have to be mayor. But he chose to be mayor because he wanted to give back to the community and the kind of efforts that they're involved with there in Pasadena. I talk about here on the show all the time. So send send my regards to the good mayor. Uh, he's he's doing a fantastic job, and I'm pleased to hear that's where you're coming to the sh- coming uh, to the show today. Well, I plan to see him very soon, and I'll do that. Well, listen, um, Memphis is is a manuscript, and it, and it'd be interesting to get the latest update on on the journey of that particular writer. But it's not the only book that you've written. And I, we're going to go back and we're going to tell the story, your story, of uh, of how you came from growing up in Pascagoula. Obviously, you became a lawyer. You wrote. You obviously must have had a love for writing along the way, but we'll find out about that. But I, th- I thought a really interesting place to start is that you once said that James Lee Burke, and, and people who don't know James Lee Burke, he's an American author, and he's known for his mysteries. Uh, you, you've cited him as one of your favorite authors before, the, the, the uh, Dave Rober Show uh, series, but uh, he he got 99 rejections along the way, which I found very interesting before his first novel was accepted. But uh, you had a few rejections of your own along the way, didn't you? Oh, I did. I did indeed. And you know that that uh, James Lee Burke story just points out how you got to have a certain amount of luck. Now, like Bear Bryant said, you put yourself in a position to be lucky. Uh, you, you got to do the work and all this kind of stuff, but even that doesn't guarantee that you will find success. To to think that 99 professionals in New York could look at James anything James Lee Burke wrote and reject it is mind-boggling. It's just mind-boggling. He's he's scary good, but uh, that just shows how how hard it is. I had well, I, I started counting them the other day. I, I don't really have them all anymore, 
but you know, up in the 70, 80 range of rejections. Uh, you just got to hit the right time, uh, the right person at the right time. Now, you can't take a rejection as an evaluation of your work particularly. Sometimes it is. So, sometimes it is. They just don't like what you wrote. But sometimes, you know, they may have all the New Orleans novels that they need. They, they may uh, have a full uh, dance card when it comes to number of clients. May not just be taking on anybody right now. There are a number of reasons for rejection uh, that has nothing to do with the quality of the work. So you just got to keep knocking on doors. I taught a, a um, writing course at Millsaps. It, it's one of these enrichment courses. And I told people, these prospective writers, look, you got to get out there and you got to send this thing out and keep on sending it out. Nobody's going to come knocking on your door. No no publishing house is going to say, hey, I heard you got a manuscript in progress. How about sending it in? It's not going to happen. So you, you got to really push. And, and, and that's not the way most writers are, are wired. They're introverts. And they don't like this business about self-promotion and, and selling themselves and what have you. Uh, you just got to overcome that. I mean, you got you got to get out there and push. Yeah, I mean, there's so many incredible stories. I, I remember John Grisham having copies of his book, A Time to Kill, in the back of his trunk and traveling all over trying to you know get someone to publish it or to pay attention to it. But there's a lot of stories like that, aren't there? Oh, yes. You know, John Grisham and I were in law school together, and I knew him when he was in the legislature. really didn't know him in law school that well, but uh, got to know him in, when he was in the legislature, and I can remember when he was writing the book. Uh, he wrote A Time to Kill. It was published by a little publishing house that is now out of business, Winwood, and he was indeed selling them out of the back of his car, his trunk. Now, he did, um, I won't say a disservice, but he gave the public a mistaken impression of the way that this thing works when he started doing that. When I wrote some novels, people assumed that I had a room full of books out there just to give away. Grisham bought those books. He, he paid just like a bookstore. He bought a thousand of his own books. So he made a, a quite an investment in himself. Um, they give you 20 copies. When, when you, you publish a, a novel, they'll give you 20 copies. Anything else you have to buy. Now you buy at bookstore prices, but you still have to buy them. So, yeah. so John, John sort of uh, gave the public an unrealistic view of writing in two ways. One, they think that every time that they see your name with a, uh, on the cover of a book, that you're rich. And, and the other thing is that you got all the copies in the world to, to give out to them. So it's <laughs> John. John really caught light, lightning in a bottle, and I'm, I'm very proud of the way he has handled fame. Yeah, he, he, he really did. He really did. Hey, listen, uh, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Mark, Martin Hegwood and talk about his time growing up in Pascagoula, his other books, what made him get have a love of writing. What does he do in life today? Uh, he's also, you know, it's interesting, he won the William Faulkner Award, but he's also planning to write about William Faulkner. I think that's so fascinating. We're gonna, we've got a lot of ground to cover. We'll see you after this break. Listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Supertalk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back to Coach View. I have my friend Martin Hegwood with us today. He, he is a friend of uh, Steve Davenport, and we'll come back to Steve's relationship to Martin here shortly. But when when Martin won the award, the William Faulkner Award, Literary Award, first one in Mississippi to, to win this specific award, Stephen called me. He was super, super proud of Martin. And now Martin's coming to us from, from the uh, mayor's chair in Pascagoula because Mayor Jay Willis is a friend of his. And I think it's just terrific that he's sitting in that chair in this moment as we begin to talk about his time in Pascagoula. But there's a lot of ground to cover, and we probably won't even begin to, to cover it all in this, uh, in this conversation. But listen, uh, you, grew up, you grew up in, uh, in Pascagoula, you, you know, around the sh- shrimping industry. I'm, I'm fascinated by my wife's family are, are from the point of Alexi and you know, the, the seafood industry really defines so much of, of their lives. But tell me about growing up in Pascagoula. Well, it was it was a wonderful place to grow up. It's a small town, which is, is advantageous, I think, to writers. And it's not a typical Mississippi town. This is not cotton country down here. This this is maritime country, shrimper country, boat building country. And and there's a, a more of a cosmopolitan uh feel to it because of mainly because of Ingalls. Ingalls would bring in engineers, would have people in my high school from California and New York and what have you. So it, it gave a little bit more of a cosmopolitan uh, feel to the town. But it was small enough to where you would be in school with the entire socioeconomic uh, spectrum. I mean, you'd be sitting right next to the son of a welder or a pipe fitter, and on the other side would be the daughter of a banker or a surgeon. So it's it's not now you get into a big city and people segregate by socioeconomic groups. At that time, it was, of course, it was racial segregation. But but there was there was a, a, quite a mixture. And, and you got to see all sides. You got to see uh, the whole spectrum in Pascagoula. It was big enough to have the things that you needed, but uh, but small enough to where you knew everybody. And it gave me a great educational background. I mean, Pascal schools were just uh, wonderful. They, they they really prepared me well for college and for for writing. And you you don't think of uh, you don't think of Pascal as being sort of a farm community, but your your grandparents were farmers. Yeah, the, they did. They, they moved down here uh, from farm country. From, okay. Uh, my grandfather came from a little town called Lemon, Mississippi, in Smith County, and my grandmother came from. Possum Neck. So uh, Possum Neck is in Tala County. So anytime one, anybody wants to talk about their their rural or, or country origins, and uh, I've got that trump card, Possum Neck, that's, that's as country as you can get now. <laughs> so so what they did was when they came down here, we went up to River Road and, and they owned all oh, 15, 20 acres of land. And, and we did. We had a, a chickens and, and had a, a milk cow and, and, and had, actually had a garden. Now it ceased to be the primary source of income, but that that country and farming heritage was another part of, of growing up. So I, I got a pretty good look at the social. I he, hate to keep using that word, but the whole spectrum. Um, I I got exposed to it. Yeah, the importance, uh, really, the importance of diversity in the community. You got a sense of that, and. How how uh, you know a, a family? I mean, how a, a community can go forward with respect and and all of that. It's just a it's a great lesson to get early in life. When w- did you have sort of a um, a, a lean toward writing and reading early in your life? 
toward reading. Yes, uh, I I was fortunate. We grew up next door to my grandparents, and my grandmother took it on herself to read me. We call them the funny papers or the comic strips every every day, which is a great way to teach a child how to read because you've got a picture going along with the words, and and it's always something funny that holds a child's attention. So we would go over that every day. And I don't know when I learned how to read, but I can remember going to Lake Elementary School when I was five years old, and I knew how to read at the time, uh, which was gave me a great leg up at, uh, at that time. I strongly encourage people with children to start teaching them to read immediately. Uh, but I developed a great love for reading. We had a little library on Krebs Avenue down here, a little wooden building, and to me it looked like the Library of Congress. I mean, there so many books in there. It was real small looking at it, if I could look at it today. But I was constantly reading books. And I grew up in North Pascagoula. It was sort of, not exactly in the country, but we didn't have as many people up there. I, I did have a lot of time to myself, and, and I spent a lot of time reading. I, I developed a love for it very early. If you're going to be a writer, you need to be a reader. You need yeah. to do it. You will absorb subconsciously uh, all the good writing. And the thing about it is you, you learn a lot from good writing, but I think you learn even more from bad writing because you can read good books and you come away thinking, wow, that was good. Then they say, why was it good? Well, I don't know. But if you look at a bad book, you can it'll go. You can immediately tell why it was bad. And so writing, for one thing, is, is to teach you what not to do. That, that's a big part of the, the writing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hey, read, read, read. When you pick up a book, well, let me tell you what I do when I pick up a book. I look at it. I read it. I read the inside cover. I look at the back of it. I look at the table of contents. I look how it's structured. I may read a little bit of the introduction. I might, you know, go through it just real quick to kind of get a sense of the feel for it. I do this in, you know, 20 minutes, you know, not, not a, not a deep read. And then I start reading it. And if I'm not hooked pretty soon, if I'm not, if you don't, if you don't have me in the first, I don't know, 20, 30 pages, I'm going to set it down. What do you do? About that same thing. I mean, uh, uh, that's uh, that's a good way to describe what I do. There is a book that every aspiring writer should read. And it's called The First Five Pages by a guy named Noah Lukeman, L-U-K-E-M-A-N. Noah Lukeman, the first five pages, the reason he calls it that is because he says, if you don't have them by the first five pages, you lose them. He then says you could really describe it as the first five paragraphs or maybe the first five lines of the book. So you really have to grab the reader as as soon as you can. Now, that doesn't mean you have to come up with some spectacular gimmick, but you have to do something to draw them in and draw them in early. So many times writers will send manuscripts off to agents and they'll say, well, you know, it takes a long time to, uh, the first three chapters are sort of a buildup, but it really picks up in chapter four. And of course the response is, well, why not start it in chapter four? You know what? People aren't going to sit there and read a, a long history and, and don't start out with descriptions of weather and all this kind of stuff, you know. Just go straight to the point uh, and immerse the reader in some action right on the spot and, and get them going. You can fill in backstory later on. Yeah, you, know, you can do that, but don't stop everything to to give backstory for five or six pages and then get into the action. 
Go straight you to know, that. You know, you, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, it's interesting because when you when you've got so many writers out there that are trying to get the attention of publishers, uh, as you pointed out, it's a, it's a lot of luck, and it really is a lot of luck. There's probably a lot that goes into that. But I'm thinking as a former publisher, not that book deals or book manuscripts were being sent to me, but often stories would be sent or concepts for stories. And if it hit me on a day where I had a lot going on, it, I, I, was, I was more critical when I read it to say, it's, you know, there's something there or there's not something there. It just depended on what I had going on in my life at the time. What's interesting, I would set something aside. I'd, I'd say, ah, this is not very good. And then I'd, I'd, I'd be in my emails, and maybe a week or two later, I'd come back to cleaning out my emails, and I'd, I'd hit on it again. And, but, but this time, I actually have a little bit of more peace of mind. I got a little bit of time to think. I'll reread it and say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is really good. But, uh, boy, that first impression is really important, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and, Ricky, what you just described, um, you apparently gave the writers a, a more of a chance than most of the ones up in New York do. I mean, they, they don't – there's not any going back to it. If, if they look at it, it's gone. You keep hearing from agents and publishers, they say, well, we're just overwhelmed. We're just overwhelmed. Well, one of the reasons they're overwhelmed – is because now it's gotten to the point where you can send a full manuscript. All you got to do is hit the send button. You know, used to you had to print it out. You had to send it in the mail. and what. It was a serious effort to do this. Yeah. Now, yeah, sure, they're going to get a lot of junk because it's so easy to, to send it to them. So they don't spend a lot of time going through these uh, these manuscripts. Yeah. You don't grab them pretty fast. Yeah. You're, you're lost. So, so, Martin, at what point did you decide to go to law school? <laughs> Rick, I'll tell you the truth. I was kind of interested in, in politics when I was a little boy. I can remember uh, political rallies down at Beach Park, and, and it was it was great excitement. Politics back then was a spectator sport, and everybody was involved in it. And they, uh, my my grandparents were were real, uh, really big into local politics. And my grandmother was sort of a, I guess you'd call it a ward boss. She could deliver about twenty votes and. And everybody knew it, so they, they, all the kids, candidates for sheriff and coroner and county surveyor, you know, we elect everything. And they'd come up to the house, and, and I was always real interested in it. And somehow it just struck me that uh, most of those people who were running for state office were lawyers. And, and somewhere around the age of eight or nine, it looked like a pretty good way to make a living. And, let's, let's do this. When we come back on the other side, we'll finish that part of, the, of that story. But we're spending some time with uh, writer uh, Martin uh, Hegwood, who recently won the William Faulkner Award. First time in this category, someone from Mississippi won this international award. It's a tremendous, it's a tremendous uh, accomplishment. We'll see you after this break. on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View as we talk to my friend Martin Hegwood, who recently won the William Faulkner Award. Terrific, terrific accomplishment first time in the history of mississippi won in this particular category an international war we'll talk about the significance of that here shortly but when we went to break we're talking about as a young guy he said he always enjoyed 
maybe the thought of going into politics, he looked around and saw other people becoming lawyers. So that's sort of what you decided to do. And sounds like you didn't turn back. No, that's right. I looked neither to the left nor the right um, and just decided that I was going to law school. And as it turns out, it really probably was not the best route that I could have taken. I, I don't have the temperament nor the desire to, to practice law on a daily basis. Um, and it's just, it, it's, I did it. I, I made it through the, the first semester. I did pretty well. Uh, that's usually when they flunk people out of law school. And uh, I, I made it through there. And then it's just stubbornness, I guess. I mean, I just decided to, to stay in there. I, I wasn't real happy in law school. Yeah. So, hey, did, to tell, so, you, so you live in Canton today, just so people can sort of know where the story ends up. Do you still work in the Secretary of State's office? Oh no, I've been retired for a number of years. Yeah, yeah, I, years. I, I thought you were, but but I couldn't yeah. I couldn't find a, an end date on that. So, uh, so you sit and, and and I spend you just spend a tremendous amount of time writing these days, don't you? Yeah, a, a good bit a good bit of time researching and writing. Um, I actually have a job. It's sort of a um, contract with the Mississippi State Extension Service, and I do some editing and some writing for, for them. I mean, it's, it's more or less in the nature of pamphlets and white papers yeah. and what have you. Yeah. Uh, I did, of course, I've written a couple of novels. I, I wrote this novel. This is retirement. Uh, I wrote this and finished this novel. I'd started it earlier. And then I wrote one. It's a detective story based in New Orleans. And uh I'm going to start peddling that. It, it's a fun story. I, I like that one. Uh, but the one that I'm looking forward to is is this a biography of, of William, or the partial biography of William Faulkner between the years 1925 and 1929 when he spent a lot of time here in Pascagoula. Uh, yeah, did you, have that as a, did you have that as a goal to write that uh, prior to actually winning this award? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I started. I went to... Uh, Southeast Missouri State University, they they have uh, the papers of Joseph Blotner, who was probably the premier biographer of, of William Faulkner. Uh, Blotner was a professor of English. He ended up his career at Southeast Missouri State in in uh, New, well, Carruthersville, um, at, at Southeast Missouri State, and all his papers are there. So I'd, I'd spent a week up there going through all the papers relative to Pascagoula and the time he spent here. I'm going to the University of Texas at Austin, where there's another collection, the uh, Carvel Collins collection. And Carvel Collins was a historian who spent a lot of time here in Pascagoula, probably more time than Blotner, interviewing uh, the people who lived down on the beach about Faulkner's time down here. He, he was a beachcomber, a, a beach bum, had a girlfriend down here, uh, partied a lot down here, but he got an awful lot of writing done. Uh, in fact, he wrote a couple of books here, uh, some say two, some say three, I, I really don't know. But the whole Snopes trilogy, I mean, the whole Snopes, um, Yachnapatawpha County line was basically started here in Pascagoula. He wrote a book called Flags in the Dust, and that was where he introduced the whole Yachnapatawpha County story. He left here uh, after that was rejected. That was rejected, and he got all bent out of shape about it, went back home to Faulkner and wrote uh, The Sound of the Fury. And he wrote that in, in Oxford. 
but he had already written Flags in the Dust down here in Pascagoula. So I'm not saying that Pascagoula, obviously, he's an Oxford guy. Uh, Oxford was his spiritual and, and literary home. But Pascagoula provided a retreat and a getaway where he really transitioned from being a poet into being a novelist. He started out being thinking of himself and being a poet. But but it was during this period of time down here that he tr- made the, the transition into thinking of himself as a novelist and becoming a novelist. So we didn't really, uh, he didn't write about shrimpers and boat builders and what have you, but it did give him a little time off, a little time away from the pressures of his hometown in Oxford, a little time away from the hustle and bustle in New Orleans to go down to the beach, lay out and on the go out on a pier, lay out on the beach and get an awful lot of writing done. And he did a lot of writing down here. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a, it was an important transition period for him. Kind of, kind of for you. I mean, you think about Memphis now, the book that's being celebrated, but you think about Big Easy, Back Road, Green Eyed Hurricane, Massacre Island, Jackpot Bay. Those were all prerequisites to, to writing Memphis, weren't they? Yeah, well, that, that's right. You, you learn <laughs> as you go along. I'm hoping that I, I'll, I hope that I get better with age. And I, I, I enjoyed those books. The books you, you mentioned were set in New Orleans, in Bay St. Louis, in, in uh, Dolphin Island. Massacre Island was, of course, the original name of Dolphin Island. But they were all uh, set here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast between Mobile and, and New Orleans. Uh, that was the setting. And uh, the Green Eyed Hurricane, I think you had mentioned that your wife's family was in the shrimping industry on the point. Well, that was set yeah. on the point. And I was very fortunate because I got there pre-Katrina. And I got to go to the old Slavonian Lodge, and I got to walk around and, and talk to some of the people who were, were still there. The Katrina just wiped out basically the point as we knew it. Right, right. But I, I got to uh, I, I got to sort of capture that in in the book, The Green Out Hurricane. And the Green Out Hurricane was I I did win the uh, Mississippi Library Association Authors Award for that, which is given to the the best work of the most outstanding work of fiction by a Mississippian was one per year. So I was real proud of that, but that, that definitely was a, a Biloxi point book. Um, Big easy back road was Bay St. Louis. Basically I was going to set that in Pascagoula and, and I had it set in Pascagoula, but there came a point in the book where he had to get from the place on the Mississippi Gulf coast back to new Orleans in about a, uh, less than an hour, and I just couldn't make it work, so I moved the whole thing from Pascagoula to Bay St. Louis. And, of course, the big, easy back road is Old Highway 90, which used to be the main route through there, but I-10 basically rendered it a back road. But it's a beautiful drive. You ought to, you ought to go to New Orleans. Yeah. That way oh, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, so, it, it had a, this whole area was a tremendous influence on, on me. So what led to Memphis, and what do you think the jury liked so much about this book? <laughs> well, I got the book. To, I, I, sit, I sat writing aside for a long time. I had to raise a family. I had to do a lot of things. It's an awful lot of work. I mean, it's an awful lot of work. Every weekend's taken up. you got to wake up at 4 and 5 in the morning sometime. Uh, so it, it was just tiring and, and wearing on me. But I got the bug again, and I decided I wanted to, to write a different type of book. And I decided, since I knew a lot about lobbyists, 
I decided that I wanted to write a, a book about a lobbyist, and I wanted to set it in Memphis, uh, mainly because Memphis is underrepresented in American literature. You don't have that many books about Memphis. And I wanted to do this for some commercial success. I wanted to make some money. So th there's a, a sort of a guideline that if you want to if, if you want to have a successful book, you need to set it in, in probably in a big city, probably a glamorous city. New Orleans comes to mind, Washington, D.C., New York, Paris, something like that. Well, Memphis may not be that glamorous, but everybody's heard of it, and they, they know Elvis Presley, and they know uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, and, and, and they know all of that, and, and Memphis just has a certain it's, – it's cotton country. And so I decided to set one up there in, in Memphis – and it was going to be about a lobbyist because I knew a lot about the lobbying profession and, and how they operate and what they do. So my hero, my protagonist, was going to be a young man, probably in his early 30s, who was a lobbyist from Memphis. And the whole thing was going to be set in Washington, D.C. Well, it turns out that I had to write all the biographies of his family and his mother, who came from a small Delta town. She married into this rich family up there. And, of course, I had immediately they, they couldn't stand that. Uh, the, the mother, the grandmother couldn't stand it. But she kept on. She was persistent. And as I started writing the book, she took over the story. It started out to be her son's story, and then she took over the book. It, it turns out it was her story. The story will tell itself. If you really get to know these characters, and you've got to really know these characters, they will tell you their story. The way you go about writing a book, Martin uh, Hegwood, who just recently won a William Faulkner Award, is, is a little different. I, saw, I heard an interview with you about the approach that you take. We'll, we'll talk about why you believe the characters are so powerful and how they help you tell the story. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Martin Hegwood. We'll see you after this. Also, listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say Alexa. Open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have Martin Hegwood, who recently won a William Faulkner Award. He grew up in Pascagoula. He's the first Mississippian to win this specific. It's an international award. So they they uh, they responded very positively to the manuscript of his recent book called Memphis. It's a novel, takes place in Memphis. Uh, you know when I read when I read sort of the review of the book, Martin, I thought about Dynasty. You know the old TV show Dynasty. Uh, is that is that is that is some of that intrigue in this book? I'm glad to hear that because that's you're exactly right. <laughs> it's the model is Dynasty Dallas, Downton Abbey. Uh, what it is, it's a, a rich family and all the intrigues and the betrayals and the rivalries and what have you. Uh, it's really the story about these characters. Character, to me, is is paramount. It is the most important feature in a book. Older folks can remember the old John D. MacDonald mystery novels. The, the ones that, you know, the girl in the plain brown wrapper and uh, the deep blue goodbye, everything had a color in it tremendously successful in the 60s and 70s and, and even into the 80s, John D. McDonald. He had a character, Travis McGee. I can tell you everything about Travis McGee. I tell you what, what brand of scotch he drank, what, what his favorite food was and all this kind of stuff. I couldn't tell you the plot of any one of those books. 
people read because they fall in love with the characters. Yeah. You got, and that's where I start. I start with characters. And I'm talking about writing a biography, their date of birth, what they like, what religion they are, what their politics are, what their favorite food is, how tall they are, what their background is. I get to the point where if that character in my mind is so real that if they walked in the door, I'd, I'd recognize them. Uh, that sounds but you don't, you don't start with a thesis statement on where the story is going to go. You let the story unfold as you write. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because yeah. I, I believe for me that the story will come out. The story will tell itself eventually. But yeah. you have to really, really get into the, the background. Oh, I have to. You have to kind of know what the, the broad uh, parameters are of the plot. I mean, you, you know, you can't just let it completely go. But. You don't have to be wedded to it. You have to be willing to change your plot as, as the story evolves. So, Martin, in the, in the very short time we have left, what's the next step? That does does this create more interest on the on the on behalf of publishers to to really focus in on you and say, hey, we, we want to grab this book and run with it? What's the latest there? Well, I, I hope it does. I'm I'm in the process right now. What I've got to do is I've got to prepare it. To ship it out, I have to come up with a good synopsis and I have to come up with a good cover letter and all of that kind of stuff. You can't just send, you can't just dump the manuscript off and, and expect them to do anything with it. Uh, you got to spend as much cover. I, it takes weeks to write a good cover letter. You can't jot this thing off right, in, in, a, in a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, luckily, I've got a pretty good synopsis on it. And you have to have a like a five page synopsis and a one page synopsis because they'll tell you what they want. So I have to get all of my quivers in, in, in my, uh, for my, what is arrows in my quiver? But I have to get all my stuff lined up to, to go on a, a sales tour. I know I've targeted a couple of publishing houses that I'd like to go to and a couple of agents. I, I, even if I get accepted by a publishing house before I get an agent, I'm going to find an agent. You and I talked earlier, the world has changed. In the old days, you could concentrate on a publishing contract with a book in mind. Now the book is an add-on. You think about what about movie rights? What about TV rights? What about all these digital rights? And you've got to have an agent. You've got to have somebody who knows that. Um, and that, that's, uh, I, I wouldn't dream of, of doing it on my own. So, yeah, go ahead. You finish your thought. Sure. You you may very well sell the book, and even then, you need to go back and get an agent. Of course, it's easier once you've got a publishing contract to, to say, hey, agent, come on in here and you know get your 15% for something I've already done. But they're worth it because they will protect your future interest. It is. Uh, it is. It, you're right. It's uh, the whole the whole business model has changed for so many industries. Publishing is not yes. an exception to the rule. Multimedia is where it's at, and you got to protect your interest and. It's a it's a big deal, and you, you got to cross your T's and dot your I's. It's probably you're lucky you're a lawyer going through this process because at least you know what to look for. When you get real quick, I bet you were just blown away when you got the call that you won this award. Yes, I was. <laughs> I really was. It was it was just out of the blue. I, you know, I, listen, I've got so many rejections. I send things off and I forget about them, and and this came in, and I thought, man, I you know I. I, well, I hadn't forgotten about it, but it had been a while, and, and I called my wife, and I said, you know, this is a big deal. Uh, I need to check this out. 
to make sure. So I called up there to make sure that they'd gotten it to the right person, you know? Well, I don't blame you because I can only imagine the number of manuscripts coming in from all over the world that they had to sort through oh, yeah. for yours, yours to be the cream that rose to the top. What a, what a beautiful statement about your writing and the distinction to be a Mississippi writer. It's awesome. It's awesome. Hey, let's shift gear. In the last second we have left, you grew up with Steve Davenport, the owner of Super Talk Mississippi Media. He's done an incredible job putting together this this radio multimedia company, hasn't he? I'm exceptionally proud of Steve Davenport. Uh, we we were both North Pascagoulans, you know. In any coastal town, the the money is down on the beach. Well, we weren't <laughs> we weren't on that side of the, the of the town. We were both North Pascagoulans. Uh, he lived very close to me. Uh, Steve, the Davenports were hardworking people. Hardworking people. Uh, they they did not have a lot of money. But Steve had a vision, uh, and and he followed it through. And to me, it's just incredible. When I talk to him, and his he he talks, he's so far above my head in, in this. It, it's just it's amazing. <laughs> well, he's but driven. I, he's driven. And I hate to I hate to stop now, but we're out of time, unfortunately. But I know you're proud. I know he's proud of you. Again, when you got the award, one of the first phone calls I got was from Steve talking about how proud he was that a Pascagoulian had gone on to to win this this distinction with the William Faulkner Award. I can't wait to read what you have to write about about Faulkner's time in Pascagoula. I, I have his book right here, the the Hamlet sitting on my desk as we speak, and I look forward to reading Memphis. In fact, when when it gets published. So listen, it's been a pleasure, my friend. We'll we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you bet. This has been Martin Hegwood, and uh, have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow. Supertalk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Supertalk MS Coast 103.1. A Supertalk Mississippi Media Production.